Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is trustworthy and true, faithful, right. It is what we need for a life of godliness. It is what we need to help us withstand persecution and temptation and trial and trouble. It reproves, rebukes, corrects, it trains us for righteousness, and it it makes those of us who are inadequate, which is all of us, adequate to what you have called us to do. And so, Father, would you would you sanctify us by this word this morning? Would you give us hope through this word? Would you give us transformation by this word? And would you give us delight in you because of this word? And Father, we, we pray these things because we, we not only need and want transformation for ourselves, but we desire for your greatest exaltation through our lives that are being increasingly transformed. And so would you, would you change us? And would we worship you because of the change you grant to us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many children, if not all children, will at some point ask their parents, Am I adopted? They, they, with that question, are wanting to know their place in the family. They want to know if there is a biological connection between their parents and them. They ask that question very often out of a sense of insecurity, seeming to think something like, if, if I am adopted, then I am less a member of this family, and I am, I am more likely to be unloved, or I am more susceptible to being mistreated. But, but if I'm not adopted, if I'm a biological child, then, then those things are going to be less of a problem for me. It's a, it's a sense of insecurity that, that drives that child's question. The wise parent is the one that assures the child, whether they are biological children or adopted children, of their security and safety within the family unit. And in something of an ironic twist, the family relationship that tempts a child to insecurity is the very truth that the Spirit of God uses to assure the believer of his safety in the salvation of God. Children believe themselves to be insecure if they are adopted. But the Spirit of God says, because you are adopted you are completely secure in your position in Christ and in God's family. It is because of our adoption that we are secure. This is found for us in Romans chapter 8. If you haven't opened your copy of the Scriptures there yet, I invite you to do that. Romans chapter 8. And we are going to be looking at verses 14 to 17 in which the Apostle Paul simply says that the Spirit of God uses adoption to give assurance to believers. The the Spirit uses the process of theological adoption when we are united to God, united to His family, connected to His family as His sons to provide assurance for believers. Let me read this passage for us and then we'll look at it a little more carefully. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, Paul writes, verse 14, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Habba, Father. 
And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, the Spirit uses adoption to give assurance to believers, and He does that in three specific ways. He acts in three specific ways to give us assurance. And the first of those is provided for us in verse 14. The Spirit leads us from sin to sonship. The Spirit leads us from sin to sonship. Now, the Apostle, and in the previous three chapters, has been explaining all of the implications for our justification, for our salvation, and how it plays out in our life of sanctification. So how is it that God, having saved us, then changes us so that we are more like God? And in this chapter, he is specifically pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. So 19 or 20 times he mentions the Holy Spirit by name and attributes the sanctifying process that takes place in us to the work of the Holy Spirit. And specifically what he's pointing to is that when the Spirit of God sanctifies us, that it is it is affirmation of or assurance of our salvation. So we know and can be assured of our salvation when we see the Spirit of God sanctifying us. And and in this immediate context, what he's been talking about in verses 12 and 13 is that the Spirit of God works in us to produce the mortification of the flesh. So notice verse 13. He says, Um, If you're living according to the flesh, that is, if you're just doing what comes naturally to the flesh, if you're doing what the world does that doesn't have Jesus Christ, then he says you must die. If if you're going to live that way, you, you will die and you must die. But if by the Spirit, so if under the power and authority of the Spirit of God, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, so you're working and you're laboring and you're pushing hard against sin, you're pushing hard against the flesh, you're pushing hard against temptation, then he says, you will live. Now notice verse 14. Having picked up that idea of you will live for... And now with that word, for or because, he's providing a reason or an explanation that we know that if we're pushing against sin by the power of the Spirit, that we're going to live. How is it that we can have life um, if we are mortifying the flesh? Because, he says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, all who... Everyone who, this is, this is not just true about a few isolated people, but, but everyone who is in the process of sanctif- of being sanctified by the mortification of the flesh, by working against the flesh, these will live. Why will they live? Because he says they're being led by the Spirit of God. Now, the question is, what, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God. What does it mean in this passage for the Holy Spirit to lead the believer? The basic meaning of the word is is that one is morally or spiritually led. One is spiritually encouraged to go in a particular direction. So so this is the way to go. This is the direction you must head. But, 
But the word has, has a much stronger sense than that. It's not just that, that the Spirit of God is providing a direction, go that way and not that way. But the Spirit of God also is governing or controlling the individual, empowering, strengthening, compelling them to go in a particular direction. It's very similar to what the Apostle will say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in contrast to drunkenness, be filled, controlled. Instead of letting alcohol control you, let the Spirit of God control you, compel you, push you in a particular direction. The Spirit is directing and leading and controlling the entire life of the believer. Not just, not just certain aspects, but all of the life of the believer is being controlled by the Spirit of God, directed, ordered by the Spirit of God. We find that same sense in Galatians chapter 5. He says in verse 18 of Galatians 5, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if the Spirit is leading you, compelling you, controlling you, filling you, then you're not under the law, and you're not doing the things that come easily from the flesh. And he identifies in verses 19 to 21, typical deeds of the flesh that the law can't restrain. In, a, in, in contrast, though, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what the Spirit compels us towards. That's what the Spirit leads us to. That's what the Spirit orders and produces in our lives. That's how He leads us. And and notice that all of those things are all-encompassing. It is one singular fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, but the singular fruit. So the one who is in Christ, the one who has the Spirit of God residing within him, he will manifest in some manner all of these kinds of attributes. Different levels, perhaps. Um, different measure of maturity, perhaps, but all of these things will be present in him because that's what the Spirit of God does. In other words, the Spirit of God controls the totality of one's life. All of his life is being led and controlled by the Spirit of God. And how does he do that specifically? In verse 14, when he says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, how is it that the Spirit of God is leading us. Well, remember, the whole context of this passage in general has been the process of sanctification, but specifically in these verses, he's been talking about mortification, pushing against the flesh, killing flesh, resisting temptation, confessing sin, walking in obedience to God. And he says in verse 13 that that happens when we genuinely mortify, put to death the deeds of the body. That happens, he says in verse 13, by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who strengthens us. It is the Spirit who accomplishes the mortification of the flesh. And I think what he's doing in verse 14 is simply looking back at verse 13 and saying, if you are being led by the Spirit of God to the point that you are killing the deeds of the flesh under the authority and power of the Spirit of God, he says, then these are the sons of God. 
And, and, and this verse, in some sense, provides a, a really helpful balance for us. Verse 13 tends to emphasize it's my responsibility, right? I am putting to death the deeds of the body. I am resisting. I am pushing against sin. I am pushing against the deeds of the body and the flesh. Now, verse 13, he says, oh, yes, but this is a work of the Spirit of God. So if you are pushing against sin in a way that honors the Lord, you must understand that this only happens by the Spirit of God residing within you, changing you, transforming you, and conforming you to Christ. The only one, the only way anyone will ever mortify sin is because of the Spirit's work within him. So one commentator helpfully says, the daily, hourly putting to death of the schemings and enterprises of sinful flesh by means of the Spirit is a matter of being led, directed, impelled, and controlled by the Spirit. So if you want to Resist sin, push against sin, be changed from someone who is a sinner to someone who is obedient to God. That will happen only as the Spirit controls you and directs you and leads you. One more thing to notice about this little phrase, being led by the Spirit of God. Notice notice that that direction is constant. We are being led. He doesn't say, He did lead you. He doesn't say, when you came to trust in Jesus Christ, that was his leading or that was his singular and only leading. But he is pointing to the fact that he is continually, perpetually, regularly, habitually, permanently leading you. This is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. That that the Spirit of God is constantly leading and controlling us. What is, what is the benefit of that? What is the ultimate end of those who are being led by the Spirit of God? Notice what Paul says. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, he says, what's the benefit? These are sons of God. In fact, in fact, he's particularly emphatic and he doubles up the pronoun. So we might translate it this way. These, they are sons of God. Paul's saying they, they really are sons of God. It's as if Paul is anticipating someone reading this and saying, really, Paul, sons of God? I mean, we know Jesus is the Son of God. But a man, the Son of God, really? And Paul, with his emphasis on the pronoun, is saying, yes, really. These really are the sons of God. Now, That little phrase, sons of God, is a term that is somewhat rare in the New Testament in that it is rarely used about people. It is, it is used many times to refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but to refer to sons of God only appears about four times in the New Testament. Once Jesus refers to it in the Beatitudes, we find it here and then again in chapter 9, and we also find it in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3. So in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle says, the law became our tutor to, to lead us to Christ, or the, the law became our tutor until Christ, so the, the law governed us. The law directed us until Jesus Christ came so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, so the, 
The tutorial work of the law has been laid aside. Notice verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you have faith in Christ Jesus, if you're no longer under the law, but you are um, under faith and in Christ, not only are you in Christ, but you are sons of God. Notice as well, if you're in Romans chapter 8, just turn the page over to chapter 9. And notice this, Paul will quote, starting in verse 25 from Hosea. And he says this, 925 Romans, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of of the living God. And what, what Paul is particularly pointing out in verses 25 and 26 is that there was a relationship that we had before we came to know Jesus Christ with God that we were, we were antithetical to Him. There was, there was nothing in us that was connected to God in any way. We, we weren't family. We weren't even part of his extended family. We weren't part of, part of what might be called his people. We weren't in any way like him. We had no identification with him. We were not connected to him, united with him. We were not pleasing to him. We were not acceptable to him. In fact, if you go back and think about Romans chapter 5, it says in chapter 5, verse 6, that we were helpless. We were orphans away from Him, incapable of doing anything to please Him or be connected to Him. We had nothing good within us. And it gets even worse. Chapter 5, verse 10, we were enemies to Him. We not only weren't His people, we weren't His kind, we were enemies to Him. We hated Him. And now, He not only has said, you're no longer my enemy, but He's brought us into His home. And He's not only brought us into His home as, as His slaves, but He has brought us into His home as His sons. Your worst enemy the person who desires the greatest ill for you, the one who is contrary to you in every way, could you imagine bringing that person into your home and not just treating him like a son, but making him your son? That is my son. That is my child. And that is exactly what God has done to us and for us through Jesus Christ. Friend, this is, this is a tremendous note of encouragement. This is a tremendous note of assurance of our salvation. How do you know, how do you know that you have been justified by God, that you have a right relationship with God, that you are in Jesus Christ? So here's the question, Romans chapter 8. Do you mortify sin? Are you pushing against sin? Are you resisting sin? Are you walking in obedience to Christ? Not, not perfectly. 
Not, not with full sanctification, but, but regularly and continually are you putting off sin and specifically are you doing it under the authority of the Spirit of God so that you're listening to the Spirit's Word and you're allowing that Word to change the way you think and then you're allowing that Word to change what you do. If you are pushing against sin, mortifying sin, killing sin, under the authority of the Spirit of God, he says, you have the Spirit of God then living within you. And if you have the Spirit of God living within you, that can mean only one thing. It can only mean that you are a son of God because the Spirit of God only lives in sons of God. If you're a son of God... You've been saved from the wrath of God and you are secure. Oh friend, oh friend, take, take great encouragement of this. This, this is your life. Again, as one commentator says, the life which God promises is not a mere not dying. It is to be a son of God, to live as a son of God, both now and hereafter. This is our position. If you are pushing against sin by the Spirit of God living within you, it's a sign that you're God's son, God's child. Take comfort from that. We can also turn that around, can't we? If you're not pushing against sin, if you're not not resisting sin, if you're not actively and aggressively mortifying, killing sin, if you're embracing sin, or if you are trying to kill sin by your own willpower and not by submission to the Spirit of God, you're just trying to prove to God that you're, that you're a good guy and He needs to save you and He needs to give you everything good that you want, then, friend, it is a sign that you are not a son of God. And what you must do in that instance is turn, uh, turn away in repentance from your sin, turn to Christ and embrace Him as your Savior from your sin and embrace Him by faith as the only means to live, the only good reason to live, to live for Him. The Spirit of God, if He is within you, is leading you from sin to sonship. There's, there's a second act that the Spirit of God does in order to give us assurance through our sonship, and that is the Spirit transforms us from fear to fellowship. So we experience assurance when we see the fruit of the Spirit working within us to mortify sin. That's verse 14. We also experience assurance when we consider what our relationship with God was before we were justified and what that relationship is now. Notice verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery... That was life before Jesus Christ. You had a spirit of slavery. Now, that little phrase, spirit of slavery, is a unique term and a little bit unusual to the Apostle Paul. But he is likely just simply thinking about our enslavement to sin. Before we came to trust in Christ, we were enslaved under, controlled by sin. And salvation has been given to pull us out of that. So, for instance, chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. You know what life was like before Jesus Christ? Enslavement, bondage, sin, only sin, 
No control over sin, no ability to change life on any lasting and permanent and compelling measure. We were caught, trapped, ensnared, enslaved. Not just chapter 6, verse 6, but also verse 18. He says, having been freed from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. Again, in other words, you were you were enslaved to sin and Christ has given you freedom from that enslavement. Verse 22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. So again, you were enslaved to sin, now you're enslaved to God. Being enslaved to God means you're no longer enslaved to sin. This is this is even what the apostle Paul points to in excuse me in Galatians 4 verse 8. He says, "However, at that time before you were adopted as God's sons, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods." You you were enslaved, trapped, ensnared. This was life and and that enslavement produced something. Romans chapter 8, notes verse 15, he says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, when you were enslaved, you had a spirit of fear. You, you had a sense of the fear of God. You, you understood that God could pour out His wrath on you, justly condemn you, and that terrified you. Or... On few occasions, you weren't terrified and you should have been terrified because of the coming wrath of God. That's Paul's point in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 18, pointing to the fact that, that those who were rebellious against God, destruction and misery are in their paths, he said, the path of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They should have been fearful and they are so rebellious that they don't even know to be fearful of the one to whom they should be fearful. Why should they be fearful? Verse 19, because all the world has become accountable to God. Every aspect of the world, everyone in the world is accountable to God. And when you are a sinner, that should produce fear. That was life before we were justified. Enslavement and fear. Bondage and no joy. No lasting joy. No compelling joy. No righteous joy. What happened after we were justified. Notice he says, verse 15, we have received the spirit of adoption. And notice, notice I said not a spirit, but the spirit. And that's not small s, but capital S. It is the spirit of God. Now, Greek doesn't use capitals the way we use it. So we've got to interpret is this spirit small s or spirit large s? Some translations take it that it's small spirit. So, so we have received a, a spirit internally, small s. I have a feeling, a sense that I'm adopted by God. I have an idea that I'm adopted by God. Um, I think it's better to take it that it's a capital S referring to the Holy Spirit of God. So we have received not a spirit, a sense of adoption, but we have received the Spirit who produces and affirms our position as adopted children of God. He makes us come into this relationship and then He confirms that relationship to us. 
Now the question is, what does it mean to be adopted? And the idea of adoption was not mentioned by name in the Old Testament, though there were a few examples of of adoption. So we find Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. We find um, Esther being adopted by Mordecai. But primarily, this is a New Testament term and a a New Testament idea. And and Paul and the New Testament writers borrow from the Greco-Roman culture about adoption, which was somewhat prevalent. And in the Greco-Roman culture, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family. So he is completely disconnected from his old family. And then he gains all the rights of a fully legitimized son in his new family. So he's fully connected to his new family. The old life is, is done away with. The adopted person... Um, had all of the connections from the old life severed, all debts, all obligations were paid and canceled. So he is completely free from everything that tied him to his old life, and now he is placed in a new relationship with a new father, and not only does he have a new father, a new master, if you will, but he also has all of the rights and privileges that come from that father and that father's household. So he has rights of inheritance that come to him through that adoption. And this is, this is exactly what the believer in Jesus Christ has. We have no allegiance to our old master's sin. We are taken out of that family. And now we have a new master, we have a new authority, a, a new father who is guiding and directing us. So Galatians chapter 3, the apostle says in verse 29, right before he talks about adoption in chapter 4, he says, and if you belong to Christ, so you have a new, a new relationship, you have new fellowship, you're, you're no longer under the law, but now you are in Christ, you have a new relationship with him, And you not only have a new relationship with Christ, but he says in the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So he is ordered, mastered, controlled by the Father. The, The old master, the old father, is removed, and he has a new relationship to his new father, and that that new relationship to that new father is secured by a gift, in this case, the gift of the Spirit of God, because you are sons, Galatians 4, 6, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but if a son, and if a son, then an heir. The Spirit is sent into us to secure the inheritance that comes through and from our new Father. We are, in every sense, God's sons. But there's an even greater benefit to divine adoption over human adoption. Consider um, what Thomas Watson writes in his book, Body of Divinity. To make us thankful, consider that in civil adoption there is some worth and excellence in the person to be adopted. But there is no worth in us. Neither beauty, nor parentage, nor virtue. Nothing in us to move God to bestow the prerogative of sonship on us. We have enough in us to move God to correct us, 
but nothing in us to move him to adopt us. Therefore, exalt free grace. Begin the work of angels here and bless him with your praises who has blessed you in making you his sons and daughters. In other words, God had every right to look at you and say, object worthy of wrath. There is nothing in you to make him say, object worthy of adoption. And he did anyway. It gets even better. Listen to what John MacArthur writes in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, No human parent can impart his own distinct nature to an adopted child. Yet that is what God miraculously does to every person whom he has elected and who has trusted in Christ. He makes them sons just like his divine son. Christians not only have all of the son's riches and blessings, but all of the son's nature. He makes you like him. He changes you internally. So he not only brings you into the home, he not only adopts you as his sons, but he changes you from the inside out. How are you going to respond to that? Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 15. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. How will we respond? We will respond by crying out to Him, Father. And th- th- this cry is, is not the cry of, of salvation. This isn't, this isn't the cry. This isn't the call we make. Will you save me? This is, this is a perpetual cry. This is the repeated, continual, daily, hourly cry for, of a child for its father. Uh, I, I read this morning, um, Psalm 120, our, our scripture reading for this morning. Psalm 120 verse 1. In my trouble, I called to the Lord. That's what the apostle is talking about here. It's a call to the Lord. In my trouble, I called to the Lord, the psalmist says, Psalm 120, verse 1, and He answered me. We call to Him because He is our Father who answers us. And and notice then, not only that we cry out, but, but notice how we cry out. We cry out, Abba, Father. Now, now, The word father was a very occasional form of address in the Old Testament for the people of God to refer to God. But honestly, it was very rare. I think it was under ten times. The number seven is sticking in my head. Seven times that we have an example of someone calling out to God as the Father in the Old Testament. So it was, it was not by any stretch the norm. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter six, when he is teaching the disciples how to pray, they say, teach us how to pray. He says, here then is how you to pray, how you, how you are to pray. What are the first two words he says? Nobody knows? Our Father. He not only invites them to pray to the Father, He commands them. You can address God as Father. You can appeal to him as father. But Paul goes another step. He says, not just father, but Abba. Abba was a a word that was used by small children. It has the sense of daddy or papa. And and this this is 
This is God's way to say, I'm not some distant, transcendent ruler that is far off and far away from you, but I'm close. I'm intimate with you. I'm connected with you. And you have a unique kind of fellowship with me. At the time of his greatest need on the cross, Mark chapter 14, Jesus calls God, Abba. He's going to his daddy for help. When, when he is under the wrath of God and bearing the penalty and weight of my sin, he appeals to his father as Abba and daddy. And my friends, we call on our father God in heaven just as Christ our brother did. We are full members of God's family as Christ is, and we have access to that Father in the same way that Christ is. And notice that the Apostle doesn't say, when we cry out, I am my Father's Son, as if as if we were exalting ourselves. Look at me and what I am. No, he says, Father, Abba, and we're pointing to the fact that God is my Father. It is all about Him. It is a, it is a God-exalting, it is God-worshiping, God-pointing kind of prayer. But notice that because of this, we can also say this, as Ray Ortland has said in his helpful book on Romans 8. He says, There is a kind of reverence which is, in fact, irreverence. There's a kind of, excuse me, there is a way of putting God off at a distance which may look pious, but is contrary to the will of God himself. There is a way of praying that is too formal and just pompous. Uh, I I wish I could put a video screen up of something that happened in my office a couple of weeks ago. My, My daughter stopped by to see me for just a few minutes and she came into my office And she did not come into my office and and sit in the chairs that are across from my desk and say, Pastor, I have a question for you. But she knocked on the door. I said, come in. She came into my office. She came around behind my desk. Nobody does that. And she just kind of stood there as if, come on, stand up, stand up. And then she said, hug me. Give me a hug. Why does she do that? Not because of pastoral prerogative. Any of you can come to my office. Any of you can come in. Nobody, not that I would mind terribly if you came behind my desk for a hug. But nobody does that. Nobody. My daughters do. There's a kind of way that we can address God and address him with formality that is a way of saying you're not close. He wants you to embrace him as my daughter embraces me and as I embrace her. He he wants us to come to him for that fellowship. He, He is our daddy with all the rights and privileges granted thereunto. You have those rights. My friends, there is nothing more natural for the adopted believer to do than to cry out to his father. Listen to what Russell Moore writes in his book on adoption about their experience of adoption. 
in his family. He says, The creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down the hallway to greet the two one-year-olds that we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, though at times we stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that come from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children. So they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down and holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. (coughs) After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. More, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. It was also the moment I became a father, in fact, if not in the law. Oh, friend, there is nothing more appropriate for a child to do than to call out for his father. And when we cry out to the father in this way, it is affirmation of the access that we have to him as believers. And it is assurance in his heart, in our hearts that we really have been adopted. We no longer have to be fearful, but we have moved into fellowship with him. There's a third thing that the Spirit of God does, a third act that He takes 
to affirm our adoption, and that is he affirms our change from condemnation to childhood. Notice verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the affirmations of our change is that he points to our new position. He points to the child's position. So he says in verse 16, the Spirit testifies. The Spirit himself testifies. The Spirit, as it were, is in a court of law, and he is standing up and saying, this one has been adopted by God to be His child. Now the question is, with whom or to whom is he testifying? And the translation, my translation says, he testifies with our spirit. As if, as if our spirit is testifying, I am a son of God, I belong to God, and along with my spirit, the spirit of God is also testifying that you are a spirit, that you are a child of God. And so the two work conjointly together to affirm sonship. But that that word can also be translated a little bit differently. And some of the translations translate it this way, and I think it's the better way to do it. The Spirit Himself testifies to our spirit. So it's not that we have some internal idea, I think I'm a child of God. But the Spirit of God working on us, testifies to us, you are God's Son. Now the question is, how does the Spirit of God do that? And some will say, that's just, and, and frankly I was surprised at how many commentators take it this way, um, some will say, well it's just kind of this mystical sense that when you're a believer you know, and that's the Spirit of God working in you. I frankly don't see that in the text. Others will say, um, well, the Spirit of God testifies to us that we are God's children by working through us. And as He works in us, He produces fruit. We're changed. We're transformed. And that is that tells us that we are God's sons. Or He produces His gifting to us. So He gives us gifts. And then as we serve Him in the body of Christ, using His gifts, we are We are affirmed we are God's sons. Well, that's true, but it's not in this passage. And so I'm asking the question, what in this passage tells me that the Spirit of God is testifying we're children of God? Well, what has the Spirit of God been doing? What has the Spirit of God been doing in us? Verse 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit of God you're pushing against sin, if, if by the Spirit of God you're resisting sin, if by the Spirit of God you're being conformed into the image of Christ, then that is not only a sign that the Spirit of God is working in you, but it is His testimony to you that you are saved. How do you know you're saved? When the Spirit of God changes you from one who delights in sin to one who delights in righteousness and obeying and following Him. And the Spirit's testimony is His work to kill sin in us. He reminds us by that of our position. When you kill sin, it's His testimony to say, we are children of God. That's our new position. He also reminds us through our inheritance. Verse 17, and if we are children, if we have this position as as children, we are heirs also. 
We receive an inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So if we are, if we're in the family of God, we're not just in the family of God, but we get the inheritance that God gives, not just any inheritance, but the same kind of inheritance that Christ himself receives. We are co-heirs with Christ. We receive the benefits of being the sons of God with all of the blessings and privileges that come with being God's sons, even as Christ receives blessing from God as being His sons. We receive inheritance. Another thing He does is He he affirms to us our position and our salvation through our suffering. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him. That if indeed has a sense of of since or because we suffer with him or seeing that we suffer with him. And it's looking at the reality of our suffering. And the suffering Paul has in mind here is the suffering that comes from being connected to Jesus Christ. It's not the suffering... Uh, that by which we are identified with Him in salvation. So when Jesus suffered on the cross, we're said to identify with that. We are crucified with Christ. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the fact, if you name the name of Christ, you will be persecuted, you will suffer. It's the kind of stuff he talks about in verse 35. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. All that stuff comes because we're connected to Christ. And if you suffer because of your allegiance to Christ, Paul says that is an indicator of your sonship and you are sure of your salvation. You really are saved. There's one more thing that he points to in this passage, and that is the child's glorification. The child's glorification. End of verse 17, if we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This doesn't mean that that we, we gain heaven and freedom from sin by suffering. We don't say, well, I suffered, so my suffering warrants salvation. No, salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only by believing in Jesus Christ that anyone will ever be saved. Christ is the one who saves us. Our works never save us. Faith is simply a way of saying, I can't, you must. But if you are justified... If you have been declared right before God, then you will suffer because of your identification with Jesus Christ. And if you are suffering because of your identification with Jesus Christ, it is an indication that you are justified and you will, because of that justification, receive the final gift of God in glory. You will receive the fullness of your salvation. You will get the glory that has been promised. Just as Jesus suffered and Jesus entered His glory, if we are with Him, we also will enter into that same glory. So, by affirmation of our sonship to God and our inheritance and our suffering and the coming glory, the Spirit again affirms the reality of the believer's salvation. Our hope is confident because because the Spirit has made God our daddy. A few years ago on Mother's Day, an adoptive daughter wrote this letter to her father. The Lord has seen fit to bless me with one of the greatest men I know to be my daddy. 
you. While biology says you weren't my original father, love says something else. Blood is the least of what makes a family. God's love is the real lifeblood of a family. You have loved me like God the Father loved me. And a lot of, a lot of people ask if I'm interested in meeting my real dad. What they mean is, do you want to meet your biological dad? Daddy, they just don't seem to get it, do they? You are the one who traveled across the world to search me out. You are the one who gave up a comfortable life in order to give me life. You are the one who rescued me. I was an orphan and you chose to call me your own. I was fatherless and you chose to be my father. But most important, you've chosen to love me. You chose to love me the day you saw me and said, that girl is mine. She's my little girl now. And you've chosen to love me every day since. I know that many times I haven't been lovable, but I am your daughter, so you have committed to loving me well, even though I don't deserve it. The most precious gift in my life is the Heavenly Father choosing me, calling me His, and loving me. And you have done exactly the same thing. You have modeled the effects of the gospel to me. Because of your choice to adopt me and love me, I have a physical taste of what my spiritual adoption is like. More important than adopting and loving me, you have taught me the gospel with your words and illustrated it with your deeds. And as a result, my eternity will be spent with our beloved Savior. The greatest gift that anyone can ever receive is the gift of grace that produces salvation. And if you have received that gift, you have been brought into the family of God, made His sons, and you, my friend, are secure. Our Father, we thank You for the security of our position in Christ once we have been adopted through Him and for Him and to Him. And we pray, Father, that as we meditate on these things and even as we come now to the table of communion to remember the work that accomplished our adoption, that You would be exalted and that we would be satisfied with You. Father, might we delight in our sonship and might we appeal to you with joy as our beloved Father. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.